Jesus House in Pursuit of God Discovering Purpose Maximizing Potential Impacting Lives This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London God bless you church happy new year again um eight days already gone uh in the month of january Um, and that tells you how quickly we have to position ourselves like we have said god is definitely doing a realignment this year and it's a realignment to position us uh, and to establish us for what god will do in our lives Um, today we have with us uh, someone whose ministry and the ministry of his spiritual father uh, has touched millions, literally hundreds of millions all over the world. Um, I've always wanted to have him uh, here at Jesus' house. We were privileged almost 20 years ago to have his uh, spiritual father, who's going to be with the Lord, the great evangelist Reinhard Bonke here at Jesus' house. And we believe that was pivotal for us uh, in the way that uh, it positioned the church. And so, you know, we're grateful uh, to have him with us. He's a pastor, he's a teacher, he's an evangelist, he's an author. Uh, But what I admire most about him is the passion he has for people to come to know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has led tens of millions to Christ all around the world. Their ministry, Christ for All Nations, is very dear to those of us who are of an African heritage because uh, Reinhard Bonnke committed himself to bringing millions, tens of millions, and probably more, uh, to the Lord uh, in Africa. Um, and we're so grateful to have him with us here on the 8th of January, the start of the year. I believe that it's pivotal. It will position us as we realign ourselves with God's heart and God's heart primarily for those who don't yet know his son Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so Jesus House, will you welcome with me, give him a Jesus House welcome as he comes to share his heart. I believe he will leave a deposit here in Jesus House that will set our hearts on fire for those who don't yet know Jesus. And I believe it's a precursor to a harvest of souls, not just into this church, but into the body of Christ. Will you rise with me and make welcome uh, evangelist pastor Daniel Colenda. In the name of Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you may heal broken marriages, that you may heal broken families. In the name of Jesus, for this nation. Jesus is the answer for Africa. Say amen.
Come on, let's lift up our hands and our voices for Jesus. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We give you all the praise and all the glory forevermore. And everybody said, amen. You can be seated this morning. What a joy it is to be at Jesus' house. Been waiting a long time to get to Jesus' house. Glad I got here before I arrived in heaven. Amen. So good to see all of you and uh, to feel the, the sense of um, camaraderie that I feel in this place. Just a kindred spirit. And um, I'm believing that God is going to do something wonderful in the place this morning. Um, I had the, the privilege of meeting Pastor Agu yesterday and spending a little bit of time with him and just hearing his heart, um, not only for the nation, but for you specifically as a church congregation. And I resonate with what is really in his heart, which is a realignment. I'm sure you've heard this terminology. A realignment toward the heart of God in all different areas, but especially what, what Pastor Agu wanted me to talk to you about is the passion for souls. And not only just the passion for souls generally, but a desire to reach people with the gospel. How many of you can honestly say that that is your heart and your prayer is that you would become a soul winner for Jesus? Okay, if that's not you, then I encourage you to listen because I believe the Holy Spirit's going to touch you this morning and God's going to change your heart in that way. One of the things I've discovered when it comes to preaching, of course, I've had the privilege to preach in 80-some countries in the world to many millions of people, and I've discovered that preaching is unique and powerful for a number of reasons. Obviously, any kind of public speaking, uh, whether it's in a classroom or university or, or whatever it is, there is a transference of communication and information that's taking place. Preaching is different and unique in one very important way. Not only is a preacher, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, communicating information to your mind, but there is an impartation from the Holy Spirit himself that is taking place into your heart. And you can actually receive from the Holy Ghost this morning. Can you say amen? amen. Now you all are going to have to help me because I, uh, I preach in Africa. I think I'm more African than some of the Africans in this place. I need you to, if you, if you agree, then you can say amen. You won't scare me, I promise. So they, th we need more than just good ideas. We need God to speak. We need the Holy Spirit to rest upon us. Can you say amen to that? And I believe that that's going to happen in this place. I believe that that same evangelistic spirit, that fervor that has, that drove evangelist Reinhard Bonnke from nation to nation across Africa, that same spirit that is on me, that is, has driven me to preach the gospel for the last 20 years around the world, I'm praying that that mantle will fall upon you this morning and that you will find within yourself a, an irresistible desire to share Jesus with the world around you. That's what we need. And that is the answer for the United Kingdom. Can you say amen? amen. And, and, you know, I, I know we all say amen to that, and, and, and we almost feel like we have to say amen to that. But I want to ask you a question. How many of you really believe, with all of your heart, that the answer for the United Kingdom is the gospel? Well, if we really believe that, 
then we'll see that with the fruit of our own actions. There's a lot of Christians, they say they believe that the answer is the gospel, but then they put their effort and their energy and their learning and their finances and their time into every other solution. They invest into politics. They invest into the world of business. They invest into education. They invest into humanitarian solutions. They invest into everything other than the gospel. If we really believe that the gospel is the answer, then we will begin to live in such a way that the proclamation of that message becomes the very theme of our lives. And I pray that it would be that way for you today. And so, if you have your Bibles, how many of you brought your Bibles to church? If you got them, just hold them up so I can see. See how many good Bible-toting Christians we have here in the UK. This is good. How many of you have your Bible on one of these little electronic contraptions? I see a lot of you have that. Just make sure that if you're uh, following along on your Bible, you're not on Facebook. We're going to turn to the book of Matthew chapter 10. And we're going to read here what I believe you could describe as the mission statement of heaven. Maybe, maybe a little bit differently. The mission statement of the church is what we're going to read here. You know, I, I, I talked to a pastor several years ago who pastored a very large, very sophisticated church in the, in the United States. And he was telling me about the process whereby they had come up with the mission statement for their church. I don't know if that's a big thing in the UK, but in, in America, you know, there's conferences about you know, how to come up with the, the right mission statement and how to communicate the right vision to your congregation. And this pastor was telling me that they did something really extreme. He, he said he took his entire staff, like a hundred people, and they went away to another state and they went to a retreat up in the mountains for about a week. And their whole objective on this retreat was just to come up with this one paragraph mission statement for the church. And he said they agonized over every word. And they debated and they discussed and they prayed until they had come up with the perfect statement that described the mission of the church. And then he said after we had, had come up with the right paragraph mission statement, he said then the rest of the time we prayed and we asked the Lord to bless that mission statement that we had come up with. And I thought, well, that, that's good, but I, I think there's an even better and more effective way to have a ministry that is on mission. You know what it is? Instead of you coming up with a great mission statement and then fasting and praying for God to bless it, what you could do is just find out the mission statement that God himself has already come up with and you could adopt it and make it your own and then you wouldn't have to even pray about it because it would be blessed already. Let me tell you something. There are some things you don't need to pray about. Somebody said to me, I said, have you ever led someone to Jesus? They said, I'm, I'm praying about it. Listen, you don't need to pray about evangelism. You have a command from the lips of Jesus. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Actually, you need, you need the Lord to speak to you to not evangelize. Because he's already given a standing command that we are his witnesses in this world. Can you say amen? And so this passage here that we're about to read is what I believe would be a perfect mission statement for your life. A perfect mission statement for the church of Jesus Christ around the world. And if you will adopt this and make it your own and obey it and live in obedience to it, you will see fruit, you will see harvest, you will see blessing. Amen? So, Mark chapter, I'm sorry, uh, Matthew chapter 10, 
And I'm going to read verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely you have received, now freely give. Say amen. amen. That is the mission statement from Jesus. So we're going we're gonna to say this together. Are you ready? We're going to say it phrase by phrase because every one counts. Say, as you go, preach. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers. Raise the dead. Cast out devils. Freely you have received. Now freely give. Hallelujah. All right, so now I want your help, okay? Because Jesus, when he said this, he wasn't talking in the abstract, just speaking up into the sky. He was talking to his disciples, people that were sitting right there face to face with him. So we need some of that same urgency and personal touch. So what I want you to do is turn to the person next to you, get out that evangelist's finger and point it at them, and tell them, as you go, preach. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, freely you have received, now freely give. All right, now we we, we need to do it again. You need to do better this next time. That was kind of weak. That was kind of like, that, that was kind of like what Americans would do. I want to hear what British people would do, okay? So turn to the other person on the other side and say, as you go, preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. Freely you have received, freely give. I had a little boy one time that thought it said cleanse the leopards. He couldn't figure out why we were giving all those leopards a bath. Now it's cleanse the lepers. Listen, this passage, again, these are the very words of Jesus to us. And I believe that whatever else your calling in life might be. Whether God calls you to serve in full-time ministry as an apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, or whether he calls you to serve in politics or government, or he calls you to the medical field or business or education, or whether you're a stay-at-home mother, whatever it is that you are, vocationally, this mission sits above all of that. We are all, wherever we are positioned in the world, to preach as we go that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We are all commissioned to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, and cast out devils. One of the great, I believe, crimes that has been committed throughout the history of the church is that there has... There has been this distinction, this this segregation that has taken place within the body of Christ where we have split the body of Christ up into two distinct groups that we call the clergy and the laity. And of course, you know what those words mean, right? The clergy are the people that we consider to be the full-time professional preachers, the pastors, the apostles, the ones that work in the ministry. And then the rest of the body of Christ we call the laity, which is another way of saying these are the spectators. 
And so let's say, I mean, what percentage of the body of Christ is full-time clergy? Maybe 2%? Okay, so that means that 98% of the body of Christ has been reduced to a crowd of spectators. Not only so, but in many cases they have been told, either explicitly or by inference, that your job is merely to sit there quietly, say amen when it's time, put money in the offering plate, and help the pastor, the preacher, the evangelist do what they are called to do. Can I tell you something? I don't know where that idea came from, but it didn't come from the Bible. You will not find the words clergy and laity anywhere in this book. That is a demonic invention intended to derail the lion's share of the body of Christ from doing what they are called to do. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, it says that the fivefold ministry, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, are given for what? To do the work of ministry? Anybody read the Bible? Is that what it says? No, it says that their job is to what? Equip the saints to do the work of ministry. See, I'm an evangelist. My job is not primarily to do the work of evangelism. That may seem shocking to you. Because you thought that if I'm an evangelist, I should be evangelizing. I do evangelize. But there is an even more important assignment that I have according to God's word. And that is, I am here to equip you to evangelize. I'm here to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Because I, as an evangelist, I can win a certain number of people to the Lord, but I can promise you one thing. I'm not going to win this country to Jesus. The United Kingdom is not going to be saved because Daniel Colenda came and did a crusade in London. The way this nation is going to be saved, the way this city is going to be saved, The way your neighborhood is going to be saved, the way your family is going to be saved, is that the Holy Spirit is going to empower you to preach the gospel. That's why Jesus said, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want to just keep the emphasis for a moment on the word you. As you go. You see, many of you are hoping that someone else will go instead of you. Someone else, I mean, we all want salvation to flow in this city. But everybody thinks somebody else is going to do it. Everybody thinks someone else is going to be the one to make a difference. Human beings have this Messiah complex. We're always looking for some Savior to come. Let me tell you something. There was one Savior and He has come. And He has done the work that He is going to do. Now the work of salvation has to be carried forward by us. I I hope that this revelation gets set in. Because Jesus is not coming again and dying on the cross again. He's going to return for a spotless bride. But until that comes, you are the answer for this world. Let me say that again. You are the answer for England. You are the answer for London. You are the answer for the United Kingdom. You, not Billy Graham, he's gone. Not Reinhard Bonnke, he's gone. Not Jonathan Edwards, he's gone. Not Charles Finney, not not John Wesley. You are the answer for the United Kingdom. And if you don't preach, nobody will. If you don't lay hands on the sick, nobody will. If you don't raise the dead, nobody will. If you don't cleanse the lepers, no one will. That's why it's so imperative that we take this mission Upon ourselves, personal assignment. 
But you know what I've discovered is that many believers, if they don't share the gospel, the reason that they're doing that is because they feel, if, if we're totally honest, they feel a little bit self-conscious. How many of you have ever felt or ever feel self-conscious? Let me see your hands. Okay, that's, that's just about everybody. If you see someone who's not raising their hands, they're a liar. Because everyone feels these emotions. When you go uh, and, and you want to share the gospel with somebody, but there's this moment of hesitation, we've all felt that. There are reasons for that. If you stop and you analyze your own psyche and your own psychology and you say, why do I hesitate? There's a couple of reasons. Number one, maybe you just feel inadequate. Maybe you feel like, I, I don't know what to share. I, I don't feel capable of, of laying out a pristine, persuasive gospel presentation. Or you're afraid. Maybe you say, what will that person think about me? What if they let me? What if, they, what if they're more intelligent than me and they root me in some way? Maybe I can get a different microphone. It feels like this one is, uh, is in the last throes here of, of its life. I'm not even doing anything. You hear that? I'm standing very still. I'm an active preacher. You know, sometimes I break microphones. Just by doing this, I shake them to death. You know, many times that, that self-conscious, even afraid nature that we have is something that, it's not just coming from us. It's coming from, first of all, the enemy. How many of you know the devil wants you to be afraid? The Bible says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. But there is a spirit of fear that tries to come upon the people of God and rob them of their effectiveness. And that spirit of fear has tried to come upon many of you. Sometimes it comes from other people. I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes your greatest critics, if you step out and you begin to take a risk, you begin to do something for God that's out of, out of the norm, you'll discover that your greatest critics are not your enemies. They are the people that sit next to you in, in the seats at church. Oh, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you, you find your greatest critics become your family members, your cousin, your auntie, that person that you always thought was on your side. But the moment you stop being average, the moment that you stop being ordinary, the moment you stop breaking out of, of the church world as usual, immediately they're going to begin to criticize you. You know why? They don't like to see you doing something that they couldn't do themselves. They don't like to see you being blessed more than they've been blessed. Some of you experience this even in, in the natural, like with your finances. If you, if you begin to make good money, people begin to criticize you. Suddenly everybody's a critic. If you, if you get promoted at work, suddenly you thought people would be happy for you. Not so much. They become jealous. You know, Jesus, the Bible says, was offered up to be crucified because of envy. That was the motive that got him sent to the cross. Because people can't stand when you stop being status quo. You know, I, years ago I was, uh, I was over at a friend's house and I saw he had this beautiful aquarium with these tropical fish. And I'd never seen anything so beautiful. So I, I decided that I wanted to buy an aquarium for myself. And I went around and I did some shopping and I, I did some research. And I found there are all kinds of aquariums that you can buy. There are freshwater fish aquariums and saltwater fish aquariums. There are aquariums for jellyfish and seahorses and corals. But the one that interested me the most was the aquarium for crabs. 
You know, crabs are these pinchers. The crab aquariums were fascinating to me for one very important reason. There was no lid on top. And I, I thought to myself, this seems risky. It seems like maybe those crabs will climb out and escape from their aquariums. But the pet shop owner said, no, you don't have to worry. You know why? Because if one of those crabs tries to climb out, the other ones will reach up and pull him back down again. And I thought to myself, that reminds me of the church. It reminds me of a lot of Christians that I know. The church is filled with crabby Christians. We don't like to see somebody climbing out of the, the box of status quo Christianity. And if they do, we take it upon ourselves to put them back in their place. And you'll hear people say things to you like, who do you think you are? You think you're better than us? You think you're smarter than us? You think God loves you more than us? And maybe they'll even remind you of all the times you messed up in the past. They'll remind you that you're just a human. My friend, let me tell you something. God sees more potential inside of you than you even see in yourself. Can I tell you why? Because when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't see who you are right now. He sees who, you cre- who he created you to be. And the potential that he put inside of you when he was fashioning you in your mother's womb. Say amen. amen. And when he talks to you, when he calls to you, he calls not to who you are, but to who you could be. Remember Gideon in the wine cellar, hiding for his life, shaking, trembling, perspiring. An angel of the Lord appears to him and says what? Gideon, you are a mighty man of fearless courage. It almost sounded like a cruel joke. Gideon looked and felt like anything but a mighty man. And he seemed to be anything but courageous. In fact, I think if you were to pull out a dictionary and look up the word coward, you'd find Gideon's picture right there. And yet God calls him a mighty man of fearless courage. Because God sees more in him. Can I tell you something, my friends? You might say you believe in God, but God believes in you. He's on your side. He knows that you can do it. Why? Because he made you in such a way that you are not going to be average. You are not going to be ordinary. Come on, somebody claim that. I, I heard yesterday, we were at this, at this meeting, the cry event, and I heard you know, somebody got up and, and said, if, the, if we're silent, then the rocks will cry out. And there was this lady behind me. She stood up in in her seat and she said, not for me, they won't. And she started shouting. And I thought that if we had more Christians with that kind of a spirit, we would take the United Kingdom for Jesus in one weekend. We are not going to sit back and let the devil run through this nation. We are going to stand up. We're going to take responsibility as you go. So first I want to put the emphasis on the word you because we've got to take ownership. But the second thing I want to put emphasis on is the word go. Everybody say go. Go. You notice that the great commission begins with the word go. Go into all the world. There's something so powerful about going that I don't think we realize. Now, going might mean that you get on a plane and you go somewhere else. Or it might mean that you Go into your workplace. You go to the street corner. You go to the highways and byways. Whatever it means, it's a, it's a word that indicates that you are taking action and initiative, that you are stepping out of your comfort zone to do something intentional. And that is where the power is. 
If you've never experienced the power of God in your life, it's because you've never stepped out of your comfort zone. Your problem is not a gift problem. Your problem is not an anointing problem. Your problem is not a lack of education problem. Your problem is a going problem. And this is the problem that most of the church is paralyzed by. Out of fear and out of a sense of inferiority, they sit in their pews and wait for God to do something for them that they are supposed to be doing for themselves. It's a going problem. The church has a problem going. You know, I, I, I don't know who the, the best football player in the United Kingdom is. There would probably be some debate about that. So you just imagine your favorite footballer. And imagine you brought this guy, this lady over to your house, and you invited them over for tea, and they sat there at your kitchen table sipping on a cup of tea with you. As you sit there having a conversation at your breakfast table, would you be able to see the talent and potential and power that is inside of that person? Yes or no? Of course not. You'll never see it while they're sitting down. But if you take them down to the football stadium and you put another team across from them and you start a game, you will begin to see the power and the potential that is inside of them. And it's the same thing for you. Do you know why most Christians have never seen the power of God at work in their lives? It's because they spend their entire Christian lives sitting in the pews at church. Sipping tea. Having friendly conversations. They've never stepped out into the arena where the blood and the sweat and the tears will bring out of you what is inside. That is where the action happens. That's why Jesus said, you go. Listen, if, if there was one thing, you know, pastor wanted me to talk about this passion for souls. If there was one thing I could tell you, you don't need to, you, you don't need to get to the point where you sit in your bedroom and you cry about how sad you are that lost people are going to hell. That's what some people are waiting to happen. They think that's what it means to have a passion for souls. That's not what it means. When Jesus rose from the dead and he found Peter on the seashore, he said, you know, Peter caught that catch of fish and he said, Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter said, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my sheep. Notice that Jesus identified Peter's love for him as the motive that should drive him to minister to the sheep. He didn't say, Peter, do you love my sheep? He said, do you love me? How many of you can say, I love Jesus? I mean, really, seriously, genuinely. Do you love Jesus? That motive should drive you to minister to people everywhere you go. Not because you love them, but because you love him. And you do love them. But you love them because you love him. And he loves them, so you love them too. And that motive, if you really get a, a hold of that, you realize, I don't need to feel this to do it. I just have to obey. How many of you know you don't need to feel to obey? In fact, the reason that we have commands, the re reason that we have rules, is because sometimes we don't feel like doing it. If, if, we, if we felt like it, we wouldn't need the command. We'd just do it automatically. People do what they want to do. They do what they feel like doing all the time. But we don't always feel like going. That's why Jesus gave us the command. As you go, what did he say? Preach. So it's not just you. It's not just going. It's preaching. You say, well, Daniel, I'm not a preacher. I've never been to Bible school. I, I didn't go to seminary. 
That's not what preaching means. Preaching is a proclamation. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, this is Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be witnesses unto me. Witnesses unto me. Now, today we often think of a witness as somebody who is sharing their faith, right? We talk about witnessing to other people. I was witnessing today. What does that mean? You were saying very religious things to somebody about becoming a Christian. But what is that word witness in its original context? What is it talking about? A witness is exactly what it sounds like. It's someone who has seen or heard something. In fact, in the, in the ancient world, a witness like today would be called, even in court situations, to give a testimony of what they saw. They didn't have to be an expert. In fact, sometimes the less of an expert they were, the better. Remember when the, when the apostles stood before the Sanhedrin. It says that they took note that these were unschooled and ordinary men who had been with Jesus. It was the fact that they were utterly ordinary that was fascinating to the Sanhedrin. They were not experts. They were people who had had an experience. And that's all that preaching is. It's your experience with Jesus. And let me tell you something. You can argue with a philosophy. You can argue with a doctrine. But you cannot argue with an experience. If somebody said, I was down on such and such a street corner today and I saw this or that happened, you can't argue with what they experienced. That is their truth. And my friend, listen, when you go preaching the gospel, you need to be fearlessly proclaiming what Jesus has done for you. Can you say amen? amen. As you go preach, what are you going to preach? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is the kingdom of heaven? What, what does that mean? You know, I, as a, as a young man growing up in the church world, I usually thought that the kingdom of heaven is at hand meant something like heaven is at hand. Like, you know, um, repent because you're going to die one day and, you know, you want to go to heaven or something. It didn't even make a whole lot of sense to me, but that's the way that I heard it. This is not talking about heaven, the place you go when you die or something. What is a kingdom? You guys in the UK, you should understand this. Because the United Kingdom spread around the world through conquest. I come from the United States. My country used to be part of the British Empire. Now in those days, of course, like today, even though we were separated by an ocean, the United States, what is the United States today, was part of the British Empire because the will of the British monarchy was observed there. And so if the British king said, pay your taxes, everybody living in America had to pay their taxes. But then there was a war for independence fought, and America won its independence. And what that means is, we are no longer part of the British Empire. Why? Because we don't listen to your British authorities anymore. So, think about that analogy. What is the kingdom of God? It's where the will of the king is being observed and obeyed. It has nothing to do with geography. It's wherever God's will is being obeyed, that is where his kingdom is. Do you know what that means? Wherever I am, because I am submitted to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Wherever I go, I am an annexation of the kingdom of heaven. That's why I can walk into a hospital room and I can say, be healed in Jesus' name. And sickness has to bow. 
Because I am a representative of the kingdom of heaven. And guess what? So are you. Wherever you go, you might be in Great Britain. You might be in London. You might be in the United Kingdom. But you are the kingdom of God. Wherever you go, the kingdom has come. And Jesus said, he took it another step further. He didn't just say preach it. He said demonstrate it. Where did he say that? Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers. Raise the dead. Cast out devils. What does that mean? Why did he say that? Why did he say preach the kingdom and then do all of these things? Because whenever the kingdom, I just told you, you are a representative of the kingdom of heaven because you are submitted to the king. But what that means is that wherever you are, the powers of that world to come are resident and present with you. So that means you have authority over sickness. You have authority over disease. You have authority over devils. You have the power to see change wherever you go. Now this is, a, this is an amazing revelation because when you do what I'm talking about, if you step out this week and you start taking a risk, remember go means to step out of your comfort zone. So the first step is you step out and then you preach. You begin to declare the gospel to people and share Jesus with people. And then you pray for them and you see a miracle take place. It's going to astonish you how the Holy Spirit begins to work with you. In Acts chapter, I'm sorry, in Mark chapter 16, verse 20, it says that they went everywhere and they preached the gospel, God working with them, performing signs and wonders and confirming the preaching of the word. So what happens is when you take that step out, you take that risk, you are very weak, you are very incapable on your, on your own, but you take the risk in obedience, you begin to proclaim the gospel, you start to pray for somebody, the Holy Spirit works with you. And then what you could not do in your own strength, God does on your behalf. And when you see it happening, you're going to make this discovery and you're going to realize, oh my goodness, my entire Christian life, I've been walking around encountering people every day that needed Jesus. And I could have been seeing these miracles all along. I could have seen people delivered from drugs and addictions. I could have seen people set free from demons. I could have seen people's bodies being healed and their souls being saved every day, but I didn't do it because I was afraid. Lord, help us to seize the moment in Jesus' name. I told this Story in the previous service, I want to tell you again, worship team, come back. This is years ago, I had this project I was working on in my yard. There was a very long beam of wood, about a 10 meter long beam that weighed 300 pounds. And I had to move it from one side of the yard to the other. So that was a very difficult job, even for a big man. So I picked up one side of it and I was pulling it and I had a four-year-old daughter at the time she came to the window and she saw her daddy struggling with this with this log and she could see that it was it was a lot for me to handle and so she came running out of the house daddy 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 let me help you and she came out with her hair and pigtails on each side and a teddy bear under one arm still dressed in her pajamas and I said, okay, sweetheart, just push that side. And so she went to the other end of that log. And with one hand, she was just pushing like this. We got the, that big piece of wood where it was supposed to go. And I put it down. And then I, I got down on one knee. And I said, oh, sweetheart, come here. Give me a hug. 
we, we embraced. And I said, thank you so much for helping me. You're such a, such a big girl. She had a, a smile that went from one ear to the other. She was so proud of herself and she couldn't wait to run back in the house and tell everybody what she had done. She was very proud of her hard work helping her dad, but we know the truth, don't we? She didn't help me that much. In fact, she might have made my job a little bit more difficult because I had to worry about her not getting hurt. I didn't include her in my project because I needed what she brought to the table. I included her in my project because I love her. And I take joy in finding her taking her joy in me. Let me tell you something. Jesus does not include us in this project of winning the world because he needs what we have. You're not so smart. You're not so talented. And you know it. Maybe you're not the best preacher. Maybe you're not the most articulate person. Maybe you don't have all the right theology. Maybe there are many things in your life that aren't perfect. Maybe you're weak. Maybe you're frail. Maybe you're flaky. Maybe you've got all kinds of of your own challenges that you're dealing with. Listen, God knows all of those things. And he didn't call you because of them. He called you despite those things. Knowing that you had those problems, he still involves you because he loves you. And it's not through your strength that he is glorified. It is through your weakness. It is through your obedience. It is through your simple sacrifice. That's why Jesus says here at the end of the passage, he says, as you go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. And then he includes this phrase at the end, freely you have received, freely give. In other words, everything that you're doing you got for free anyway. People often ask me, you know, I've seen many incredible, powerful miracles. I've seen blind eyes open. I've seen cripples walk. I've seen body parts grow. I've seen dead people come back to life again. And, and, and I, sometimes I'm on television shows or I'm being interviewed for, uh, you know, a book that's being written or whatever. And people want to know how it is that it's possible to see these things happen. And my, my response is always the same. I tell them that miracles are the easiest part of my job. You know why? Because I don't do them. Salvation is the easy part of my job. You know why? I don't do it. I've never saved anybody. I've never healed anybody. I've never raised anybody from the dead. There's one savior. There is one healer. There is one deliverer. There is one baptizer. His name is Jesus. My job is a very simple one. I just say, hey, you have a problem? So do I. But let me introduce you to somebody that can help both of us. And his name is Jesus. Hallelujah. Would you stand to your feet with me this morning? Thank you, Jesus. I want to pray for you. Like I said at the beginning of the service, there's got to be more than just information communicated if true change is going to take place. There's got to be an impartation from the Spirit of God Himself. And so if you can honestly say, Daniel, I want to be a soul winner. I want to see your hands. I want to pray for you. And I believe that the Lord will answer that prayer in a dramatic fashion this morning. In fact, let's just do this. 
If you have your hand lifted, look around you and find someone else whose hand is lifted and take their hand in yours. Let's all join hands across this place. Thank you, Jesus. And I'm going to pray for you, but then I want you to pray for each other, okay? And, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for you for just a minute. And then I'm going to ask you to pray for one another. And I want you to pray for the one. If you have people on both sides, pray for the one on your left and on your right. And pray for them out loud. Okay? And pray for them the way you want them to pray for you. Ask God to give them boldness. Ask God to give them a harvest. Ask God to make them a soul winner. Ask God to give them a burden for the lost and for this city and for this nation. And ask God to do a mighty miracle in their life. So, Father, in Jesus' name, I pray for your people. You see the desire of their heart. Lord, you said that if we would pray in faith, asking for anything that is your will, that you would give it to us. And, Lord, we know that if there is anything that is your will, it is that none would perish, but that all should come to repentance. Lord, we repent. We repent, Lord, for not preaching the gospel in obedience to your word. Lord, we repent when we've been lazy, when we've been lethargic, when we have passed the responsibility for this great work of the preaching of the gospel. And Lord, we ask that you would transform our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Lord, make us soul winners. Make us soul winners in the name of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for a spirit of boldness. Lord, I thank you for a spirit of courage that comes upon your people now in Jesus' name. Lord, raise them up. Put a powerful burning fire in their belly. Lord, I pray that you'd fill them with the Holy Ghost in Jesus' name. Lord, you said when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power and you'll be witnesses, witnesses, witnesses unto me. Lord, fill them up and make them witnesses in the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for fruit. I thank you for harvest. Lord, I thank you for conversion and results right here in this church that there would be an explosion of salvation and of evangelism in the name of Jesus I pray now just pray for that person on your right and your left bless them in Jesus name